Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. And I'm Amy Kraft. And Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, and educators. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. And this podcast is one of the ways we do that. Every week we talk about the newsy stuff from children's media and we also invite guests on from the children's media industry. This week we are super excited to have David Kleeman on. He is the Senior Vice President of Research at Dubit. We had a fantastic conversation with him covering all things from the Emmys to VR to studies about kids and the content they consume so stay tuned for that. But this week we're going to start with a great article in Publishers Weekly, right, Amy? We are. Um, for those of you who are into graphic novels, especially ones made for young people, you'll know the work of Jean Luen Yang. He did books like American Born Chinese and Boxers and Saints, just truly great, great work. Um, he is also um, a recently named MacArthur Fellow, and he's the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. And it's in that latter role where he is talking about something called the Reading Without Walls Challenge. This is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. You know when you do that thing of like, I finished reading Harry Potter, I love Harry Potter, what books should I read now? Right. And there's always, like you'll see it on in libraries and on Amazon, like wherever like you pick out books, if you liked that, you'll also right. like this. Yep. Um, yeah. And what those, what those are is like books with similar characters, definitely like in the same genre or like you like action, so this has action. Um, and it keeps you reading in sort of a silo, like yeah. a wall, like within walls, if you will. Um, <laughs> so, so reading without walls turns that on its head. And I just, I think that this is a really compelling idea. So right. you just finished reading Harry Potter. Why not try something in a completely new format, like an audiobook yeah. or a graphic yeah. novel or with completely different kinds of characters or in a different literary genre and I think by doing that you can just be exposed to so many more different kinds of things right for sure I, I think it's just fantastic I remember when I discovered um, graphic novels by accident and just sort of picked one off the shelf um, it was a Batman one and like I just started consuming graphic novels so um, yeah I, I think you're right it's like sort of if you like this read this and it's sort of a warm bath that you keep sort of um, getting stuck in. I think I'm sort of imagining almost like, could this be an app where a kid could sort of um, say, I just finished reading this and then sort of pulls a lever or pretends to pull a lever and it, it sort of spins. And then all of a sudden they get, you know, two or three different books and it could be like, listen to this audiobook, audiobook or check out this mm -hmm. graphic novel or read this thing that's totally not related um so i think that would um i think it's really fascinating I, I think it's a great idea um i think it it totally goes against what a publisher wants right in terms <laughs> like, of they they want them to consume the just keep eating the same thing over and over again it's it's safe so right because that's yeah. how they know what books to make it's right like, right it's exactly. a huge success. let's make more like that <laughs> right right <laughs> Yeah, Hunger yeah. Games. We need more dystopian fiction. <laughs> right, just endless dystopian fiction. Just they're eating it up. Just keep pushing it. Yeah, you know, and that sure. actually brings to mind, like if you grow tired of something, like I see people ranting, like enough with the dystopian <laughs> fiction. So it's like perfect. You're exactly the candidate to like go read right. something completely different. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They uh, he should um push Amazon to sort of create a thing where. Um, if you like this, here's something a little bit different, but still, you know, to, to push the, to, to get over the wall, so to speak. You know, I think about like how my daughter went through the reading list she got this summer for her new school and she went down the list thinking like, what am I interested in? Um, she likes girl characters, ones that she can relate to. And she completely skipped over anything to do with sports or like <laughs> military historical fiction. She's like, I want no part of this. Um, but it makes me think like, do we like, do I push some of that honor. Like, I like a good sports story, even though, like, I'm not a sports fan, you know, they're like, it's good storytelling. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it's challenging. Like, my little guy's not reading yet, but, like, um, you don't want to sort of, like, it's almost like as a parent, you want them to be reading, right? So, like, if they're reading, and then all of a sudden you're like, here, read this. And, like, now are you, like, turning them off from reading? So, um, I think it's a challenge, but I think you have to, but also getting a kid out of their comfort zone, right, um, Mm -hmm. is, is is super important. And I think, um, exposing him to, to something different. I mean, like you said, I think you have to sort of find a way to build that connection. So maybe it's, it's the connection of a kid my age is reading this. So it's not some adult telling me to read it. Or maybe it's, it's a case where like, did you like Hermione's, um, brains? Well, you'll like this book that talks about someone who has incredible, um, who's incredibly intelligent. And right. that might not so like you have to you have to build it that way. I'm like that yeah, like if you're like, okay, this character is perseverance, right. therefore here's another story where character Right, is right, exactly. That's not totally related and the character's a little bit different, but like, you know, there that trait sort of goes through and sort of you can build it that way. Um I'm like really interested in building out this app now of like how of how kids could discover um these books but not really just not even realize they, they're stepping outside of the walls all right i think what we're doing here is planning our first diversity in apps app, app yeah because <laughs> um, it would work for all media for sure right right exactly i actually um somewhat of a tangent i used to always be obsessed with the idea of like if if i drank a bottle of wine and i liked the wine like i wish there was a way for them to be like if you like this wine you'll also like this wine and yeah. then, of course, now there's like a thousand apps that do that. So, um, so yeah, they took my idea, Amy. That's how it goes. Right? You know, we just have to get on this soon. <laughs> right, right. We better jump on it. But speaking um, of great stories, we mm-hmm. have a book that's turning into a movie this week that opens this week, right? Yep. We've talked before on the podcast about Queen of Conway and it's opening today. Um, it's about a Ugandan girl who becomes a chess champion. It's getting a lot of Oscar buzz um, for Lupita Nyong'o and David Oyelowo directed by Mira Nair. You know, so there's a lot of like great things about this movie. Everyone's excited to see Lupita Nyong'o's face after she's done like Star Wars. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like she was a voice in Jungle Book, you know, sort of like, yes, put her on screen. Right. but I think it's interesting. We're going to talk about the Emmys in a bit with David Kleeman. Um, but we have a very diverse Emmys this year, or making progress towards that anyway, mm-hmm. um, which stands in stark contrast to Oscars, so white. Right. Um, and I think, you know, I encourage our listeners to, if you can, go see movies like Queen of Cotway, you know, like that, that have attributes of what you want to be seeing like a diverse cast of female director you know like anything like that try to see it on opening weekend yep. because it's like unfortunately like even in today's like streaming and mm-hmm. like you have all these different options that's still the metric by which movies are judged is like how much did it make on opening, opening weekend yeah, yeah. So, i vote with your dollars people like yep. go out there and and support this movie and so we don't have another repeat of, of oscar so white and so executives see that um you know these are mainstream stories and um and we need to to continue to tell them so yeah uh, yeah and i'm so excited to take my daughter to go see it this weekend yeah. and we'll have to go again as a diversity and apps field trip for sure yeah yeah there's nothing wrong with getting some more popcorn again yeah yeah exactly because <laughs> uh, you are not able to see it this weekend right right i am not able to see it this weekend i got the kids by myself so something tells me taking the the one and a half year old might um, might create <laughs> some people to leave. So, or maybe I'll be asked to leave. Um, but yeah, that I, I think if if you're able to see it, folks, definitely see it um, this week. And, oh, you know what? Even though you can't see that, you can watch Luke Cage oh, right. which on Netflix today. <laughs> right, right. Not not totally kid friendly, but um, it's been getting great reviews. So um, yeah, yeah I would watch that. that with the one and a half year old. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a definite no-no for sure. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to do it for the newsy stuff this week. Um, as I said, stay tuned. We have a great, great interview with David Kleeman coming up. 
All right, folks, we're very excited to have a, uh, a guest on this week, David Kleeman, who's been in the children's media business for over 30 years. He's currently the Senior Vice President of Global Trends for Dubbit. David has a lot to share with us. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on this week. My pleasure. It's been great listening to the podcast, so I'm, I'm glad to be able to take part in one. Thank you. Thank you. So we first want to start with, um, you know, since since we broadcast the Emmys have happened and you actually got a chance to go to the Emmys this year, right? I did. I've been on the board of the Television Academy, the governing board, for uh, five years now. I'm actually about to term out of the board. I have to, I have to retire for a while. But <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah. The things that come with that is the chance to go to the Emmys each year. So I've had a chance with each of my daughters to, to be a uh, the cool dad by taking them and, and uh, then again oh, wow. got to go this year and it's pretty remarkable it's it's uh, as a governor you actually get to walk the red carpet um, you know I don't stop and do the interviews with the uh, <laughs> uh, who, who were you wearing <laughs> you know I'm not even sure who made the truck <laughs> I thought when I joined the uh, joined the governing board yeah Amy's doing the interview right now for the record. yeah exactly exactly your stylist really needs to get on you you have to know that information <laughs> yeah I, I, I guess they just don't pay me enough to wear their uh, outfits so. right <laughs> so having gone to the Emmys multiple times do you get starstruck you know I I love seeing the stars and I, I am terrible at identifying most of them but I have this feeling that I don't want to walk up and talk to someone unless I have something useful to say to them I don't just want to go up and say I, I love your work so for example this year my favorite theater in Chicago uh, was started by David Schwimmer so when I saw David Schwimmer I, I felt a need to go up and thank him for starting Looking Glass Theater mm -hmm. um, but, but in general I don't just go up my, my daughter my younger daughter is fearless when I took her, she is married to a guy who um, is totally turned off by pop culture. And she walked up to Jon Stewart and said, you know, you and I are the only two people in this room my, my boyfriend at the time cares about. And he thought that was hysterical. And I thought that was just so good. <laughs> wow. That's excellent. Yeah. So, so it's not, I mean, you've been to the, to the Emmys multiple times this year. It's, you know, there was a real focus, Jimmy Kimmel sort of, he made a joke about it, but there was a real focus on diversity, a discussion about it, especially in contrast to sort of the Oscar so white controversy. Did you, um, I mean, did you notice that from, from, um, from the previous years that you'd, you'd attended? Well, I think I've, I've noticed it growing over the years. And, and I, I think, you know, there are obvious differences between film industry and the television industry that probably have some impact on it. But I, I think it's gone hand in hand with the growing diversity of, of outlets for, for television content. That as, as HBO, as Netflix, as Amazon have risen in the, uh, uh, the, their presence at the Emmy Awards, that uh, you there's more opportunities for different kinds of storytellers to tell their, their story. You're not limited by three hours of prime time um, every evening, but, mm -hmm. but you really have the opportunity to, to do a lot more. So. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. And Netflix even ran that great, um, was it Shiro's ad during yeah. the Emmys of like featuring all of their like very diverse female characters. Right. And I think like Netflix and Amazon especially are doing a great job of like hitting these real niche like audiences with the shows that are amazing. For sure, you know, I yeah. saw it just after the the Emmys saying, "Why are they giving the awards to these programs with small audiences? Why why aren't we giving awards to the programs with big audiences?" And I thought, well, first of all, that's the People's Choice Awards is, is right. the public vote, or it's the ratings. And and one of the great things about the diversity of the Emmys is people discover new programs that they would not have have watched otherwise. Look, look at the success of. Um, People versus O.J. Simpson. I, I, I think that's going to have a second life now among people who sort of saw it go by the first time and may have thought, eh, not going to watch it, but now say, oh, wait a minute, that's that's quality television. I, I got to go back and watch. For sure. I mean, that's how I found Arrested Development when they had uh, when they won the Emmy. Um, you know, that's how I how I discovered an, an amazing show. So that's a good point. Um, and I like seeing it um, reward people who have been part of a cultural conversation. I was so happy to see Key and Peele win, you know, especially yeah. since I've 
it's our last chance at the Emmys um, for that show. So it was really exciting. It right. was indeed. So, yeah, I, th- I think um, one of the things that, that you do um, consistently re- related to TV is, is the, um, the pre-genus suitcase. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and, um, and how it sort of relates to the diversity that you've been seeing within television? Sure. I, you know, you mentioned at the top that I've been involved in children's media for over 30 years. And, and for pretty much all of that time, I've been going to and uh, working with the, the Prisoners, the International Children's TV Festival that takes place every year in Munich. Or I'm sorry, every other year in Munich. Uh, mm-hmm. It has 1964. Um, it's in Munich, despite the French name. <laughs> and... It, uh, Sort of the, it's not just a recognition of the outstanding programs from around the world, but it's also a chance for the world to come together and kind of take the temperature of the children's TV space. So you get, um, you have about 90 programs from around the world that have been chosen from over 350 nominee or 350 entries, wow. and then you have 500 people from all around the world, more than 60 countries who come to Munich to participate in the, the screening and discussion of the programs. So instantly you have this amazing diversity of, of participants there. And my favorite thing about it, and what I try to instill when I do the screenings in the US of programs from the festival, is it's very easy when you see something that comes from a culture you're not familiar with, that is done in a way you're not familiar with, to just kind of say, well, we could never air that in the US, and so kind of close your eyes to it and say, and turn off to it. But it's much more fun and much more interesting and much more productive for our industries, I think, to look at it and say, okay, I know that doesn't work here, but why does it work where it comes from? And at Prisoners, you have this benefit of people from 60 countries where you can go up and say, you know, I don't get why you made it this way for Bangladesh, but tell me about kids there and why it works that way. Uh, you know, I, I, how can you get away with content like that in Norway that we could never put on television in the U.S.? I, I use Norway very pointedly this time because the most challenging program I think I've ever seen at Prisoners was there this year and will be in my suitcase. It's a sex education program for teens that includes not just full frontal nudity, but almost um, uh, gynecological exploration <laughs> in, in, in nudity. But wow. it's straightforward and honest and uh, you know, engaging program about girls' maturation mm-hmm. that you stop noticing the nudity and you only, you know, it, it's what teens need, it's the honesty they need. And, and so you have to stop and ask yourself, why can't we do this? Why, you know, why do we not trust kids in one place, but we do in another? Mm-hmm. Right, right. And is it um, is the is the um, festival in Munich? Is it just children's programming, or is it across the spectrum of um, adult and and kids? Just kids. It's, just it's kids. got three categories. It's up to up to six, uh, seven to eleven, and twelve to fifteen. Gotcha. So it's uh, little kids. Uh, grade school kids and then mm-hmm. tween um, and, but everyone you don't attend just to watch one category you you watch across everyone watches together right. so you have 600 people watching all the same programs and then going off to discussion groups and talking about what they've seen um, wow. and, and uh, so you have a, a common experience, which is unlike most conferences we go to these days where I go to this session, you go to that session, mm-hmm. and maybe we share details later. But but here, it really drives people to sit up late into the night talking about, about what they've seen. You know, the, the, the other thing about Prisoners that's always struck me is um, I come from the U.S., from a, a, immer- you know, a, a place where kids are immersed in media. They've got every platform you can imagine they have all the you know just a a huge range of content uh, available to them and I'm always interested in the countries that don't have that quite that same range or where uh, they don't have the the amount of money that we have to invest in in children's programming I think I I mentioned when we were uh, talking before this this podcast about um, 
one of my mentors in this business, a guy who used to be the head of children's programming for Danish public TV, um, retired several years ago. He, this, this guy actually was the last person at Denmark's radio, the, the broadcast, public broadcaster there, to have a lifetime appointment. When you get a lifetime appointment, you can do one of two things. You can put your feet up on the desk and say, they can't fire me. I'm not going to do anything. Or you can say, they can't fire me. I'm going to take every risk in the book. And that's what this guy did, uh, Morgan Svammer. And, and what he did with that, he had two philosophies that I've always tried to keep very close to my work as well. One of them was Denmark's a small country where it would be very easy for them just to buy programs from other places. It would be much cheaper, much easier. But he, he always said to his teams, when a child wakes up in the morning and turns on the television in Denmark, how do they know where they are? So he really wanted to create television that had roots for Danish kids, where they saw neighborhoods they knew, they heard language they knew, they saw you know, things that looked familiar to them, the foods in the shows were things that they were familiar with. And obviously that's something that has to evolve over time. Denmark's a very different place than it was 30 years ago when I started doing this, with immigration, with just mm -hmm. changes. But he wanted to keep that evolution of, of Danish kids waking up to see their country. And then the other thing he told his teams was that he wanted Danish kids to understand that children everywhere grow up with equal dignity, even under unequal conditions or unequal circumstances. And his way of dealing with that was to send teams to different developing world countries each year to produce documentaries about um, what it's like to grow up in those places. And they could be just radically different. A child in Guatemala who breaks stones for a living, who you know, breaks mm -hmm. big rocks small stones and then is paid just a penny for every big bag of stones he fills up or pennies and he found this wonderful way and I, I think a long story to get to what I think is really the point for, for diversity in apps and for people who are creating diverse content for kids is it can be very easy to portray a different life from yours in a way that turns kids off where they right. say you know that's so different from mine I just don't get it and I can't quite cope with it but if you just give kids a small handhold, something familiar enough to them that they can say, that's a little bit like my life, then they can understand it a lot more. So the kid in Guatemala is not only supporting his family, but he's also saving money to buy a bicycle. And a bicycle means he can both go to school and he can work. And for kids in Denmark, that was sort of, okay, I, I get it. I, you know, a bicycle means freedom to me, too. Mm -hmm. um, was enough to connect them. Mm -hmm. Right, right. That I mean, it, that those stories sort of made me think of um, the Tiny Bop app, Homes, and yeah. where um, they show multiple homes from all over the world. And um, you know, Tiny Bop talks about how kids can relate, right? Like the the things that they show, how they cook the food, um, and sort of these traditions that they have. The home may look different, but the things that they're doing are the same things that a kid sitting, you know, in a Brooklyn brownstone is. Is, is doing as well and sort of how um, how the house looks is different but they recognize you know that's the child's bed etc but yeah once you you create that connection um, really fascinating stuff I think those those two pieces that you're talking about show you know creating roots for the child to recognize where they live but also sort of recognizing that the, the world outside of of where they live there are still kids there that want to do the same things that that you want to do so um, it's an interesting dynamic, for sure. Living a much more global life mm -hmm. now, by the time they get to the age where they're they're online and, and uh, connecting with kids. You know, I, I look at young people today and think that they, when I was growing up, my choice of friends was basically who I could reach physically. At, mm -hmm. at first it was the kid next door, then it was maybe the kid on the next block. And it didn't matter if we shared interests. If I was into baseball and he was into violin it didn't much matter because we were all that we had <laughs> kids have the opportunity to connect and to be different things throughout the day especially at the teen years you, you'll code switch you'll you know you may be one thing at school and yeah. another get home and uh, if you're a violinist you may be playing duets with someone in amsterdam via skype um but later on you might be trading um you know, manga, you, you might be talking about manga with someone in a completely different part of the world. 
Right, right, for sure. David, do you think that there's a way for, like, I always say this after I go to see one of your suitcases because I love them so much, um, for kids to start seeing this content, content. You know, I feel like, you know, there is sort of, like, even with YouTube and things like that, there are sort of walls off from content from other countries. Do you think we'll start seeing more of this? Well, I, I think with the streaming world, we will. You know, I, I know that we have a, a mutual friend, Russell Miller, who's uh, building something mm-hmm. uh, called Wonder Reel. That, that is, that's very much at the heart of it, a streaming video subscription service where you will get content from all over the world. I hear more and more producers and distributors talking about how you connect kids to, you know, the, the kids who are, who are not satisfied with the sameness of content that they get, how you can connect them to things that are going to be new to them, things that are going to be uh, more challenging to them. And and so I think we will see uh, more opportunities. Every time I see one of the pieces there, it's like, oh, my God, we could never make that here. But I so want my kids to see it, like the one that comes to mind. And you always present these with such glee, which makes me really happy. <laughs> of like, It was one of the Scandinavian com- countries, I'm sure, but showing kids just like ripping apart what was a scale um, and using power tools and all this great stuff. Exactly. And and that, you know, that was another lesson in that it was one of the most wildly educational programs I've ever shown, but never, no one ever sat down and said, here are our series educational goals and the curriculum it links to, and here are the episode educational goals. But what made it so wonderfully educational, it was a Dutch program. um, And, and it was, um, Exactly as you described, kids are given a big box of tools and something to take apart. There are several episodes. There's a scale, there's a stove, there's a, actually an old camper van. Uh, <laughs> and just shows you working together to take it apart, but they talk through it. So in the scale one, for example, the um, one kid takes off the back and is looking at how when you step on the scale, the, the pieces inside move. And he says, okay, now you come look at this and I'll go step on the scale. Um, so, so you see them problem solving in real time, uh, to, which to me is, is one of the most wonderful educational things that you can do. I, I will say I'm always careful when I show the suitcase. I don't want people to get depressed and say, <laughs> you know, we, oh, we could never do that in the U.S. Why can't we do that in the U.S.? What I want is for people to go home and say, how can I take a little more creative risk, a responsible creative risk with what I do? Having seen the, the what you can do if you're if you're empowered to take risk, how can I just edge my way toward that and gain not only my boss's trust but also parents' trust that I'm going to do this responsibly? Because that's how you that's how you make incremental progress. Right? Doesn't like this sort of thing happens in sort of adult TV, right? Like there are plenty plenty of like I think even Friends was sort of built off of a British comedy, right? Um, or, or based I think on all British... of our television was once a British show. <laughs> yeah, that's like the sense that I got that, like they they'll see something and they're like, well, we can't do, we can't take it to that extreme that that they've taken it to, but we can. And I think it always helps, right? Oh, this show was a hit um, in the UK, and sort of um, that helps, like um, bring it to life over here. So. Um, well, examples in the children's space. You you remember you know when the first Harry Potter book. Uh, came out. They mm-hmm. changed it in the U.S. from the British philosopher, Harry Potter, yeah. and the Stone, yeah. just Bruce Stone. And they went through and created an American version that had a lot of uh, words changed, like jumper into sweater and, thing, and boot into trunk uh, with a car and things like that. Yeah. Time, kids basically said, you know, we're smart, we get it, just give us the, give us the regular version and, and there was, there's no need for us to figure it out. We used to say kids wouldn't listen to, to accents on television or on in film and television, and then um, the Harry Potter movies came along, and it was like, oh no, we get it. We we <laughs> we can understand the British accents. Don't worry about us. Right. But adult um, imposition of a, a feeling that kids won't won't get it, and if we trust them, they will. It's interesting. Yeah. So we talk about streaming as being sort of something that can change things. And I know you have a lot of thoughts on how virtual reality can start to change things as well. I do. Um, It's something that that my company, Dubbit, is is looking at quite a bit from three different angles. We're we're 
you probably know that most devices for VR right now, most of the, the, the sort of truly immersive devices, say 12 plus or 13 plus, not recommended for kids. And even Google Cardboard says don't give this to kids unsupervised. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we know that with as with many technologies, kids are going to want to play with it. As it comes into the homes, they're going to find their way to it. And they're going to love it. They're, you know, the kids that we've tested, the Dubbit has tested already uh, with Oculus Rift, with cardboard, really are engaged by what's possible in, in virtual reality. Um, and I think we have a particular advantage here. VR has been the coming thing for 20 years now. <laughs> <laughs> I, so everyone yeah, who's I, VR I definitely wanted to ask about that, so I'm glad that um, it's sort that of a jumping right and into it. Appears and, and, you know, now I think it's, it's really well and truly launched. Um, with every technology that's come along since television and probably before, we have marketed it to parents of kids first as how educational and how good for kids is. And then when it reaches a saturation point, kids become less important. So you've got to get television. It's going to be so good for your kids. Um, you know, you, you, you've got to have a TV in the house. You've got to get color television. Imagine how, how much they're going to learn from uh, seeing the world in color. You've got to get a, a computer. Uh, it's going to be so educational. You've got to get the internet. You've got to get tablets. And then, you know, look at look at what happened to television. By the, by the time it was emerging, by the time most households had it, it was okay. Kids, you get Saturday morning. Um, I think with VR, because it's been coming for so long, and because kids are still a little bit hands off, we have the opportunity to really think deeply about how it's going to be good for kids and to make them really truly partners in it, not just a marketing gimmick. Um, so what we're doing, we're, we're, we're building VR. We have created a couple apps already, both in, in animation and we're working on live action apps for the Australian Rules Football League so that kids can actually go onto the pitch with their favorite players. They can go in the locker room. Um, and we're building apps for, for cardboard as well as for HTC Vive and some of the more immersive devices. We are distributors. We uh, are co-owners of something called We Are VR that's an all-ages, adult and kid, um, virtual reality download site. But we also just launched Bogglebox, which is a kid-specific download site for VR so that parents can find a place where they can trust that Dubbit has vetted these, these VR apps with our... Uh, 17 years of experience as a company with benchmarking quality content for kids in multiple technologies. But then the really important part for the purposes of, of our conversation today is, is research. That we are um, working with, we've already done some research with Oculus Rift and kids 7 to 13 years old. We've done a proprietary study for a client with kids 6 to 14, and we are just launching into a really major study with physicians, with psychologists, with academics, and of course with kids, so that we can try to evolve some best practices in VR for kids, so that we can go back to the hardware companies and also to the, the content creators, say, here's what we know about making experiences that are comfortable for kids, here's what we know about what bothers them about the, the headsets, uh, here's what we know about length of, of time that kids can do this and be comfortable in it. Here's what we know about content safety, about privacy, and, and so forth. Let us help you create sort of best practices in this field so that we are engaging kids with VR in responsible ways. How does so do the industry take that? You know, does it, I think about a lot of things like when women try on headsets created by men, you know, it's like they don't fit right and we don't see them quite right. And then for kids, that's like, you know, very much true. It's like some of these headsets are gigantic. Whereas, the, you know, cardboard is more comfortable, but then more. you have to like, hold and it I up to your face. I think cardboard will be the way in for most families. I and mean, you already mm -hmm. seen the New York Times distribute a million cardboard mm -hmm. uh, viewers. You started to get them. I, I think they'll be one of the popular. We dub it hands them out at conferences often. You'll see them uh, becoming more and more ubiquitous in families. And I think parents are much more comfortable with seeing their kids hold up a cardboard viewer than, um, than they are seeing them put on a, an Oculus Rift headset at this point. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a, it's, it's reasonably simple 
uh, changes that that are going to make it more comfortable for kids. Everyone wants the headsets to get lighter and more mobile. I mean, you know, no one, no one adult or child is a hundred percent comfortable with a big heavy uh, helmet on, basically. Right. Um, and I think that the introduction of the PlayStation VR is probably going to make a big difference in that. But it's small differences like adjustable um, eyepieces so that you can account for kids. Uh, smaller interpupillary distance. How's that for? <laughs> you can adjust to, to different face sizes. Um, I, I don't think we're going to need, you know, here's the women's headset and here's the children's right. headset. We just need uh, things that are, are more adjustable. And what are you seeing in terms of, of the research? Um, you know, I think there's been a couple of articles that came out last week and this week talking about empathy and how. Um, there was there was someone that I read who said, of course, it was in a tech in a, in a TED talk that said, "This is why I think virtual reality has the potential to actually change the world." The world. Um, <laughs> so, where what is your research showing? Are we on our way to changing the world? <laughs> our research primarily has been with um, how comfortable kids are, how engaged they are. But then we do ask when they're finished. Okay, so what would you like to do with this technology? And, and the first thing I'd say is I'm thrilled that kids go almost instantly to education, that yeah. the three things that they say they want from it. One is take me to places, you know, if, if we're studying ancient Rome, put me in the Colosseum, engage me, you know, put me at the center of it so I can explore. They want to go places that exist, but that their classes can't go. Take me to the rainforest. Let me explore the rainforest. And in one of the most 7- to 13-year-old answers I've ever heard, they, and, and I think this is probably primarily boys, but I, I, you know, I, I can't vouch for that, is, is they say, I want to be swallowed in VR and go through the digestive system. Oh, it's so good. It's like Magic School Bus. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Speak of Magic School Bus, if you have not yet seen the video of the Lockheed Martin... I was going to mention the same thing. <laughs> just to make it... It's very expensive now, but I think it's a, a game changer in terms of how we think about VR, because no one really wants to see a classroom of kids all under separate helmets or in their separate cardboard viewers for too long. This is a school bus that Lockheed Martin has outfitted to the windows go from clear to translucent screens. So you see kids get on this school bus in Washington, D.C., and they're riding along the streets of Washington. Suddenly, the windows go dark, and they're on Mars. And everyone on the school bus is experiencing this in their windows. There's, you know, they're, they're seeing Mars landscape go by. Wow. And as the bus is making turns, they're making turns on Mars. So you can have an entire classroom in a, in a common VR experience. And I think that's massive for education. Um, the other thing I would recommend people look at is, is the Google Expeditions one-and-a-half-minute video about how they're approaching learning and I think what's important about that is you see how cardboard VR can be incorporated into a curriculum how it's not kind of a break from from school you know a break from learning but it is a teacher sets it up uh, sets up the experience with the curriculum they go in and just for a couple minutes they're exploring a particular space and then the teacher is primed with questions to ask them about what they've seen. I think it's a very important way of saying VR is not a substitute for a teacher. It is an enhancement for a teacher and one that they can incorporate naturally without a lot of having to change their way of teaching. So that, that's one aspect of it. I, one of the things that excites me most about VR is that we think of it first as a way to kind of excite the user. It's it's the roller coaster. It's the shoot first-person shooter game. It's the way of you know, sort of getting your heart rate up um, because you're immersed in the situation. But some of the most interesting uses now have been ways of calming you, of um, either creating empathy where you find yourself in the middle of somebody else's life, whether it is life in a um, a refugee camp in Jordan where you mm -hmm. get of, of uh, just what it's like to when the food truck comes in and everyone is kind of pushing forward to uh, to make sure they, they get to the truck. That, that's not a good calming experience necessarily, but it is an experience where 
you're you're immersed in somebody else's world. I heard a talk the other night about someone who's using VR to actually put you in the body of someone who is unlike you, where basically you are talking to a version of yourself that is either a different race or a different gender, and you begin to understand their experience a lot better by, by seeing yourself as them. Um, then there are the experiences. Uh, we're hearing a lot of talk about uh, using VR with kids with autism and allowing them to, to practice experiences that would be very anxiety-producing for them in a virtual world uh, before they actually have to, have to try them out in the real world. So again, letting them rehearse over and over until they become more comfortable with the situation. And then finally, some of the most uh, engaging work I've seen, I, I had a chance to try this out, is, is uh, meditation. Um, I tried out a VR app where you're in the headset, you're wearing a heartbeat, a heartbeat monitor, and the more you are able to regulate your breathing and your heart rate and slow it down, the better the experience becomes. So you're actually swimming underwater, and you see more around you as you become more calm. Uh, so I, I think as a biofeedback mechanism, VR has great potential. That's really, the other day I was reading about how one school replaced uh, detentions with meditation, and it's showing great oh, yeah, results. I saw that. So, like, that could be really interesting. <laughs> you're, you're going into the corner and spending five minutes under the... Uh, like, go to it. the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I had a question, David. You know, you mentioned that VR has been coming for, for 20 years. Um, do you... What do you think is is sort of changed? Is it um, is it a cost factor, or is it a case that sort of it's you know these big companies like Facebook and, and Google have sort of said, okay, it's here, and it's here because we're deciding it's here. What's what do you think has sort of changed that that made it that now it's it's sort of arrived? I'd probably put it somewhere in the middle of that. That I, I think it's more. Um the ability of technology to make it mobile, to uh, or more mobile um, and of higher quality. Um, you know, the headsets of, of 10, 15 years ago actually were sort of dangling from the ceiling and were were really heavy and and you couldn't move very far or uh, sure. That. And and Oculus Rift, I think, shows that you can be a little more mobile with it. That the HTC Vive, you are actually moving around in a controlled space. And it warns you if you're getting near something in the physical world that you don't want to bump into. But the ability to move and to be embodied, you have hand controls, I think makes a huge difference. Um, the quality, at least for, for live action, um, well, the quality of both live action cameras and of computers for processing and of, of mobile phones for cardboard, I think is one of the things that's that's made it really catch on this time that one of the reasons people feel sick in a VR experience or feel feel uh, um, dizzy is be is when the image can't keep up with your motion so if you look to your left and the scene takes a minute to catch up with your looking that's gonna make you queasy whereas if if the processing is fast enough that it really can move along with you um, that makes you much more comfortable we've actually just in the experiences we've had already developing apps uh, in VR, we've learned a lot about how to make it a comfortable experience, how fast something can go across the screen that's ideal, that's not so slowly that you become a little bit nauseous um, trying to track it slowly, that's not so fast that you miss it, but that is really ideal for tracking. Mm -hmm. How far up and down a, a kid especially can look before it becomes disorienting. You really want to keep things kind of in a 30 degree up and down space with occasional, occasionally you can go up to 60 degrees. But once you get past that, with the very occasional exceptions, it, it becomes uncomfortable. And, and in might, terms of like cost, like if you have a, um, you know, that you guys have, have developed some apps. Um, I saw in the article it was talking about how um, you know, you can develop a, an app for a phone for a reasonable number. Obviously, a short film in VR is is a much much bigger number. Do you feel like it's the you know the apps that you guys have developed could be commercial apps that that could do well? And is the cost of doing that sort of reasonable for an independent developer? Or is that still going to take time? 
I think it is. Some depends on what resources you have going in. Mm-hmm. So if you're an animator and you already have 3D animation resources, that yeah. is going to lower your cost for, for porting it to VR or for, for adapting it for VR substantially. I was pretty blown away. We did a five-minute or four, about a four-minute um, experience for the HTC Vive that we were using as a demo at the Children's Media Conference in Sheffield in England uh, in July. It, it's a, a narrative experience. You go into a fairy garden. You uh, A fairy helps you discover the hand controls, which become magic wands, and various things happen after that. So it's a, you know, a short story that we can bring people through in about four minutes. That was two engineers and two weeks to build that whole thing. Wow. Um, mm. And, and uh, so that tells me that, that with smart, you know, smart development, that the, the costs don't have to be excessive. Uh, one of the apps we've developed is, is actually doing quite well on the, on the store right now. It's, it's called Space Rustlers, and you, you play a cow flying an airplane. Why not? <laughs> As one does. <laughs> and fighting off uh, spaceships that are coming to rustle the rest of your cattle herd. Um, so it's basically a, a shooter game, but, but in, in sort of a, a fan, you know, funny fantasy uh, setting, and you're, you're flying an old biplane. Um, you know, again, it was not so expensive to, for us to develop, and we're able to put it out on the store, and like apps... With VR, you can constantly update and change, so we're always improving. You can always improve the quality if you try something out and people say, this would be better if only. Mm-hmm. Um, headset prices are still reasonably high. As I say, PlayStation VR will probably, probably change that. But I do think it's interesting that we're seeing this range of devices now for whatever a family is looking for, whether it's the simplicity of cardboard, or step up to the Samsung Gear, or the um, or Mattel's ViewMaster, uh, which are a little more expensive but not much, and and a little bit more immersive but not hugely so. PlayStation, Oculus, HTC, uh, you know. So so we're creating things at a range of entry points, and prices will drop, and, and as people get used to using it, then they'll step up to the next. I'm, I'm intrigued to see how most families bring it into the home because I think it'll start with cardboard. Will they have kind of one immersive headset, whether it's an Oculus or something like that, and a bunch of cardboard for the kind of quick experiences, or will they want to have multiple immersive headsets as we get more towards social VR? Um, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was trying to digest all of that. It, it's it's really fascinating. <laughs> the other thing I, I would say that we don't know yet is what's narrative going to look like in, in virtual reality. We're very good, even already, at thinking about how games can look and how immersive experiences can look. But narrative is really a tough one. And I, I haven't been satisfied with the narrative stories I've seen so far because v, what makes VR different is you're at the center. It's about you. Mm-hmm. And ones I've seen so far, you're still kind of a fly on the wall looking at someone else's experience. Yeah, I, I heard one of the uh, one of the articles I read was, it was fascinating, they talked about sort of like, if you imagine a box, and then sort of the narrative starts at the top left corner, and then goes to the bottom right corner, and then sort of your experiences are around, around it, but it was still, like you're saying... You're sort of on the outside of the narrative that's running through, and you're sort of choosing paths. Like something happens on the narrative, and you can sort of follow the bunny as far as you want, but the narrative is still running across it. So um, I think it's going to be challenging to sort of break away, or like, you know, you have this sort of linear narrative that people are used to to telling, and it's going to be hard to, to sort of create a bunch of different paths, right, for, for people to explore. I think the most challenged people are going to be directors and writers. Right. Because both of those are going to change entirely. And, and for your listeners in um, the UK, on January 19th, I'm actually producing an event at YouTube Spaces in cooperation with YouTube Kids on what's narrative in VR for kids. We'll have a couple people who are already thinking about this and producing for it, but mostly I want the evening to be kind of an open mic night where we can talk. People can say, well, here, here's an idea that I've been thinking about. And, um, 
sort of a, a safe space where people can can start to brainstorm about what narrative can look like. One uh, article that we'll link to in the show notes is Project Empathy is Left mm-hmm. Behind, um, which tells the story from the viewpoint of an eight-year-old girl whose mom is being arrested. And I think one of the interesting things there, like I think we'd have to see it to kind of judge it, have a narrative plays out, but keeping the camera at eight-year-old height, <laughs> just that alone. I mean, you know, in certain films and games do this too, but um, just being, David, like you're saying, mm-hmm. like the being in somebody else's body, I, I think that really has um, some interesting places to go with narrative. Yeah, I mean, as someone who who writes, it's just, to me, it's just terrifying. Like, the idea of now you're writing, like, multiple... It's hard enough to get, like, one linear narrative right where you feel good about it, and now having to write these different paths and sort of how that story ends up is is super challenging. Well, in terms diversity figuring out who your who your user is who they are as protagonist mm-hmm. um, what situations you put them into that will either you, you, you'll have the choice between making them comfortable and making them uncomfortable um, but I th- and there's learning to be had in, in each yeah for sure one of the things that grabbed me when I was just watching the Google Cardboard intro video <laughs> was just being like all of a sudden like face to face with a gorilla in the wild. And so you could even think about like, how do you tell, say, Jane Goodall's story from the perspective of Jane Goodall? I mean, I think that there's like a lot of interesting perspectives of just like immersing. Maybe it's like a character that you already know and you put yourself in their position. Maybe you are Hermione, like Pottermore VR. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like now you're Hermione, where do you go? Like you already have a sense of that story. Could yeah. be an interesting story. Yeah, I mean I think like um the Telltale games, like the uh like Game of Thrones had a piece of this actually made me when they were talking about the box and sort of how the linear narrative like Telltale Games has a thing where the the Game of Thrones narrative is going on and you're sort of playing this um this like Lord where you have a little bit of property and sort of the war is going on, but you're still out. You're kind of outside of the main narrative, if that makes sense. Like you might interact with someone in the main narrative, but sort of come back to it. It's, it's going to be really interesting to, to figure out how they do it. Cause like you're saying, David, you're supposed to be the center of, of this, right? So then how do you, how do you give them as much sort of freedom to, to do what they want? So exactly. And, and it's and just being able to kind of look 360 that is, is able to um, interact with others. And, and that. Right, right. I, one of my favorite findings from our study with 7 to 13-year-old Oculus Rift is, is um, kids wanted to be the bird in Angry Birds. They, they sort of, for games, they wanted to take on a new perspective. It's like, okay, <laughs> instead of firing the bird, we want to be flying through the air and go smashing through the walls. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that I want to do that right. now too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you were t- you were talking about that study. You also had another um, study you're working on with develop me appropriate a developmentally appropriate point of view, and um, I believe that's called the TAP study. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that um, Dovett did this study with the University of Sheffield and also with CBBS and a couple other partners. And it was a, a sort of multifaceted study. We were in kids' homes looking at how they were, very young children, zero to five, were playing with tablets. We were talking with parents. We were looking at the top apps for zero to five in the app store. Um, we, so we were coming at it from multiple directions and uh, looking at sort of the alignment of, of uh tablet apps and, and the abilities of kids zero to five. And let me say at the start that you can find this study at tech and play and spelled out T E C H A N D P L A Y dot org online. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about the online version of this this study is that you can there are different um, write ups for content creators, for academics, for early childhood educators, parent and parents. So that no matter what perspective you come at it from, you can read about the study and the implications for your role in, in working with children um, and technology. The two things that came out of that study that I find most fascinating, one is that there is a logical progression at which kids learn to do different gestures that, that you need to play with apps on a tablet um, that aligns with development. 
So the first thing they learn to do is swipe. Um, that, that's really the first gesture that we find kids learn to do at the earliest age. And then the rest of them sort of come along in this, in this developmental progression that you can almost track by age. Um, Cork University Hospital did a similar study to this, actually, and they went so far as to say, you know, it might be possible that we could use facility with a tablet as a developmental benchmark for kids, not, you know, not to identify it down to the month or anything, but just to, to say, okay, here's where they are along this continuum of what kids are able to do at different ages with, with uh, tablet facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it sort of goes from can do it with, can't do it at all, to can do it with, with assistance or, or direction, to can do it unaided. So that, that's one element of the study to, to pay particular attention to. The other that I think has the broadest implications for, um, for our industries is we found something that we're calling emotional scheduling. That you know, we've all been talking for years about how, or the last couple of years about how, with um, digital technology and streaming media and the tablet world, kids are no longer beholden to somebody else's schedule. If if you don't see it at Thursday on two, that's okay. Thursday at two o'clock p.m., that's okay because you can probably find it somewhere else. Right. What we're finding is kids are creating their own schedules for themselves around the ebb and flow of their day. So they are choosing the platform that they use, they are choosing um, the content that they use on that platform, and even to some extent the room that you find them in. Based on what has happened during the day uh, so far, based on what they've come from and what they're about to go to. So morning use before they get ready for school of technology or media is very different from use when they come home from school in the afternoon, which is very different from use on a uh, weekend morning, which is very different from use just before you go to bed. Um, But there's consistency to it in in how kids structure their own days with with technology. And I think if, if you're a content creator and you start looking at that and thinking about when, how, and why you expect your audience you anticipate your audience using your content and the platform you're putting it on and the audience you're, you're trying to reach, um, that's going to be a very helpful piece of information to know when you're most likely to connect with them. It's also really important. You know, One of the biggest problems that we find today is discovery. There's so much content out there. Right. Every one of our trend studies, we, we study a thousand kids in the U.S. and a thousand in the U.K., and at least one other country every six months and, and then look at how their lives with media and brands are changing. Every country, every time we do this study, at least 60% of kids are saying they often or sometimes have trouble finding content that appeals to them. And we think it's, it's definitely not that the content isn't there because there's so <laughs> much out there. It's that there's so much they're having trouble discovering what, what appeals to them. So if you take this emotional scheduling that, that we're looking at and you take your own content and who you're trying to reach we think there there are probably hints in there as to how to drive discovery that is really interesting i'm thinking yeah. about all the different ways my kids use media and you're right it changes depending on weekend or afternoon and where they are i also notice like my kids go between shows that i would have gauged as too young for them that they've outgrown but they'll sometimes return to and shows that i think are too old for them or media or games you know that kind of thing like what's going on in their little brains right right (laughs) something i love watching over the years is how kids sort of need that touchstone of of earlier years you know they'll they'll go back to a show that they may have outgrown but that just gives them comfort Mm mm-hmm is there um like is there a name for this cohort that's like um you know the, there's the millennials and then s- sort of what is this cohort that's coming after the millennials and sort of their i mean if the millennials are sort of digital natives like what are these these <laughs> kids cuz i almost like when you said that 60% of them can't find content i'm I almost feel old and the guy who's like you know get off my lawn like seriously you can't find content like what's What's wrong with you? Maybe um, you have a I mean, bigger I, issue. We refer to the ones after millennials as Gen Z, 
Um, but I, I actually think we're going, we may be going through generations at a faster and faster pace. Mm-hmm. The, the under five generation now, and, and even the, has never known a world without tablets, the under 12 generation hasn't known a world without smartphones. Um, yeah. And all, all those things change the world very, very quickly. Um, it almost it becomes very hard to, to continue to, to label them um, yeah. in the same way we always have. Yeah. I'm sure we'll keep trying. <laughs> yes, for sure. Someone comes, has to do it. We have to go to the double letters now. It's... Yeah, exactly. AA. <laughs> well, so, at one point we'll have the chip generation. Like, you know, back in my right. day, the, yeah. <laughs> they just have never known a generation. Yeah, they've never known a world without being born with a chip in them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I actually want to go back to sort of the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about how streaming like Netflix, Amazon, et cetera, have sort of brought these shows. Um, you know, in in some ways have brought diversity into the forefront or sort of brought, because they're focusing on a niche audience or maybe, um, you know, just in general, the we've sort of reached peak TV. Um, have have you heard from sort of networks, network executives that, um, you know, we aren't able to do what we want to do or sort of we, we would take a risk on a show, but, you know, we're network TV, we're not HBO and therefore we can't, we can't do something. And I guess when you hear that, if you do hear that, what's your response? I know we're sort of going back to the beginning of the conversation, but it's been on my mind. I I don't think I've heard that precisely. And I, Mm -hmm. I, that even, uh, you know, what we think of as as network television, which I would include basically, you know, cable like Nickelodeon or or Disney are able to take more chances than they once were in part because, um, their content is appearing in many more more places. So yeah. kids are not always just finding it on the television, but they're finding it on their tablets. And, their, and so I think um, they are able to to take more risks than, than they were at one point. I also think there, as the audience gets more and more fragmented um, and, and people have to sort of look at their numbers in a whole different way of, yeah. of people are viewing... There's a different approach to it, and uh, there's a song I love from a musical that um, I'm not sure it lasted very long, but but at least it, the, the musical was called Title of Show, Title of Show, Name of Show, Title of Show. <laughs> it was a, very meta. It was a musical about the creation of a musical, and my favorite song from that is called the 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 chorus is I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. Hmm. Um, please go. Please go find the song online and listen. Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Um, but um, what it's saying is, you can make compromises, and everyone will look at your stuff and say, "Yeah, that's okay." I, you know, I, I, it's it's my ninth favorite thing, and 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 you can get a bigger audience that way. But I think media creators are seeing it's necessary now to really deeply connect with your audiences and to become qualitatively important to them and emotionally important to them so that they'll keep coming back to you so that it won't just be, I tried it once and it was fine, don't feel any need to go back to that, mm-hmm. but it'll be um, you know, something that, that they truly truly connect with. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, just sort of you want to be top of mind um, because there's so many choices out there and so you want to have that deep, deep connection. Yeah. That makes sense. Exactly. You know, yeah. and I think that shows up at some level, probably more with adults than kids, in the binging phenomenon. That you know, a, a, a new Orange is the New Black, a new this this week for me it was Transparent. I went through the entire new season of Transparent in about a day and a half. Um, that it's <laughs> connects with you so well that you you can't stand to stop until you've finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that also changes how this show is is made, probably as well. I think um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This this has been great, David. I feel like we could probably talk to you for another couple of hours, um, but you'll have thank, to come back. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, you'll you'll definitely have to come back. But come back. in uh, in the meantime, where uh, where can we read more about your work and and Dubit's work online? Um, couple things. I uh, tweet more often from conferences than just on a day-to-day basis. But if I come across something interesting, I'm up 
with it as well. At David Fleeman, just E-V-A-D-A-L-E-E-M-A-N. Okay. Uh, tweets at Dubbit. Um, the place I'd really love to connect with people is I run a Facebook group for children and media professionals just called you know, look up on Facebook children and media professionals mm-hmm. it's a group by request so send in a request and I'll, I'll approve you um, and the reason I want to connect there is because it's interactive it's ever we have almost 2,000 people now all posting articles posting opinions we get some really good dialogue uh, yeah. going yeah, for folks for folks listening, I I go there every single day. It's a fantastic group. It <laughs> has so fantastic too. articles. Uh, Diversity in Apps has um has definitely posted articles um from there that they've come there. It's it's an active group, very intelligent. They um you know, they have a lot to say. Definitely check it out if you're in if you're in the space or even if you're not. It's just really great. So And we work very hard to avoid spam. We mm-hmm. we don't want there just to promote but to discuss and and uh, that so it, you don't get you don't feel spammed there yeah yeah um i also write for kids screen on occasion and for the huffington post so you can you can follow me on either of their sites great great Beautiful. awesome yeah we'll definitely link to uh link to those in the show notes david thanks so much again for for coming on thank you this has been great fun all right 